G'day listeners, you're probably thinking, that's not David or Tim's voice, and you'd be right. My name is Lucas Day, and after drinking and chatting to the lads for the episode titled, Creating is a Matter of Passion, Not Time, the time has come for me to release my new single, End of the Day. Head to your favourite music streaming service and search Lucas Day, or go to lucasdaymusic.com for more info. Enjoy the episode. Change always asks us to not only form new habits, which requires attention and focus and is exhausting, but oftentimes we're asking people to let go of a habit that's very well grooved and comfortable. It's that juxtaposition that's really challenging. You know, I do a lot of leadership training and manager training, and unless you build some of the habits in the room by having them practice the skill in the room, the minute they go back to their cubicle or their office or whatever, everything in their environment is telling them to run the old habit. And unless you start grooving that new habit, it'll be a lovely conversation, but you won't actually see behavior change. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. With me in our virtual studios is a somewhat not well Tim Whiffen. Thank you for having me, David. <laughs> I was hoping you might cough in the appropriate time or wheeze or I don't want to make the listeners um, have a kind of psychological reaction to my disease while they're listening to this. So I'll keep the coughing to a minimum. Hey, it's okay. Everyone out there, he's only got a normal cold. It's okay. Tim will be fine. I'm even going to be in a normal studio with him later today. So you better be fine because otherwise I don't know how to use the gear in the normal studio. We have backup plans for this kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad you do because I still don't know what I'm doing. And our special guest today, all the way from the United States with very different weather, very different COVID-19 conditions. Welcome to Blind Insights, Britt Andriata. Lovely to meet you, David and Tim. I'm excited to connect with your listeners and spend some time with you today. Thank you very much for sort of finding time. Just sort of looking at all the books you've written and all the things you do. When I originally wrote to you, I'm like, oh, wow, this could take a while to organize. So the fact we've done it so fast, thank you for being so flexible. Oh, absolutely. It worked out in my schedule and I'm glad to have the conversation. Listeners, to give you a bit of context, first, why I got excited about Brit's book. It's called Wired to Resist. And it's about the biological reasons why humans are bad at undertaking change successfully. And this is something I've been interested in, you know, through consulting work of going in and helping small teams and seeing what a big result you can get with a small bunch of motivated people, but how so often the changes you can get with a small group hit the wall when you get to the big organization and people just lock down. And I've read different bits and pieces before about this. So, you know, Gary Klein stuff in how people gain insights. And some of you will remember we had Gary Klein on last year. You know, the idea that you have to get past your habituation, you have to give up your assumptions. These are all things that give you a little bit of an insight into why people are resistant to change. But Britt, in a book where she read herself, so once again, the author reading their own book, which I as a blind guy vote for every time, captured more stuff in probably the initial five or six chapters on why change fails than I think I've probably read in over 20 or 30 books. 
So for all of us that have worked in places or studied in places or trained people or been trained in groups that are resistant to change, I think you're going to learn more in the next 50 minutes than you could really learn otherwise in sort of a month of reading. Hopefully that wasn't a scary intro, Britt. <laughs> I'm just honored. Thank you. I'm glad that you got so much value from it. And I had the same experience. I'm trained in all the other models. And then when I started researching the brain science of change, it really helped me understand why we keep getting it wrong so much. So I'm glad. So you're a biologist impact on you. by training? No, actually my PhD is in education, leadership, and organization. So I kind of studied okay. that intersection between learning and leadership. Right. I did do some science in my undergraduate years. And then probably people most know me for being the chief learning officer at lynda.com. Yep. And Which then became part LinkedIn. of LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, I've, I've been designing learning experiences for people for a long time. And now I consult with organizations all over the world on various issues related to business success and change is obviously one of those. How long did it take for you to just start looking at models and when you started reading them go, I'm reading another model and I know how this is going to end. It's all going to seem exciting until I try and apply it. And people hit that resistance wall again. How many times did that happen before you got really frustrated and started your own research? Well, the story is, you know, I, as a learning professional, I was already trained and certified in most of the change management models out there, and I would teach them confidently. And I had already written my first book on the brain science of learning. It's called Wired to Grow. So I had just finished that book when I walked into work one day and was told at 8 a.m., hey, we just got bought by LinkedIn. Congratulations. You have a job. And in 30 days, you need to report 500 miles away from here. And who knows who you'll be working with and good luck. I was excited. I mean, I was a fan of, of Jeff Weiner, the CEO at the time, and it had been a company I wanted to work for. And then I realized not only for myself, but for all my peers, the models were not at all explaining the emotional stuff we were going through, the physical stuff we were <laughs> dealing with. And I realized, oh, I wonder what brain science says about this since I had just been in the journals reading about brain science of learning. So I started kind of digging in because I was just curious, like, what are we missing? You know, what, why do all these models not really explain what's happening to me? And what I realized was a lot of the models really focus on the structural aspect of change, you know, designing it and executing it. And so they're a really good process to follow when you're rolling out change but none of them address human resistance. And what really surprised me in the reading was that 50 to 70% of all change initiatives fail. I mean, think about that. Half to almost three quarters fail. And most change is not designed by idiots on a whim. You know, they're usually carefully thought out by really smart, smart people. And a lot of time and energy is put into designing the execution plan. And yet what's happening is no one's addressing the, the human resistance. And it turns out we're biologically wired to resist change for a lot of really good survival reasons. And this, this pandemic has given us just really clear examples of it. Um, so yeah, so as I was reading all this stuff, I was like, oh my God, I guess I'm writing another book. And then, then after that, I was like, I, I guess this is what I do. So I have a third book out on the brain science of teams and collaboration. And I'm working on my fourth book now. So it's kind of become my thing, but I didn't intend it for it to be. <laughs> the accidental thing. Because my observation working you know, with teams and with organizations, you know, normally with small teams, because that's just what I like doing, is 
they're doing so well and they're enjoying this because their boss has given them a safe environment and in the safe environment, they're open because growth is being encouraged. And then you hit the wall of the bigger system. And the thing that I kept looking at and kept sort of frustrating me was going, okay, all this planning is a rational actor model, which is perfectly sensible. Economics did it for over a century. Multiple disciplines have done it for over a century, but there's nothing rational about asking people to radically change their lives. And I think a bit of a breakthrough for me was listening to Ant Middleton's book, The Fear Bubble, where he talks about, you know, containing fear to the point where it's legitimate. So, yep, at this point, fears can legitimately start, but once the thing's resolved, fear can legitimately end. And in doing so, bring yourself back to being more reasonable. So my first thought was to go, hang on, it's all about really managing fear. So I sort of got a little bit of an insight through Ant Middleton, but again, his insight made sense from his world of special operations and kicking indoors in Afghanistan. But when you try to extend it outwards, you realize most change doesn't cause that kind of visceral fear. It causes all sorts of more subtle things and in a really layered way. So what I found interesting in your book is you start with the basal ganglia with, not with the basal ganglia, you start with the limbic system and the amygdala. So you start with fight and flight, but you don't make them too big a thing because you've got three more bits of the brain to go. Did you have a suspicion when you sort of found fight and flight that there was a whole answer there or you were like, okay, this is the beginning and now I just need to keep digging. Well, you know, what's interesting about studying any discipline actually is that the scholars who are studying brain science, for example, neuroscientists, they all are focused in on a very narrow niche and even they don't talk to each other. (laughs) So as I was reading across all these different scholars and then expanding beyond neuroscience to other sciences and then the business literature, I was connecting dots that I think other people could have connected to. It's just kind of, it turns out it's kind of my superpower is to look at all the stuff and kind of see where the themes are. But I think, you know, when you look at how neuroscientists do their research, they're really focused on answering a couple very narrow questions and they go very deep, but they're not necessarily looking at what are other scholars saying or how does this relate to what it looks like in the real world, right? The lab is not the real world. So for me, it was really interesting to see these things line up. And it ended up being the intersection of a few key pieces of research. One is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's research on grief, on death and dying. And she studied these stages that people go through when they, when they get a terminal illness diagnosis or their loved ones. And it turns out they first go through anger and fear and resentment and then frustration and anxiety. And then they go on further to this whole range of emotions. It turns out it's quite predictable. And they're not very fun emotions. They're, they're emotions that people don't enjoy feeling, you know, confusion, frustration, depression. And this whole f- first half of the curve is because we're wired to look at change as potential danger. So if you think about our amygdala, we're all the descendants of people who had highly tuned amygdalas because our fight or flight system gets kicked off when change happens our environment. So right now, your your senses are scanning your environment. And if nothing is changing, your body will be fairly calm. But if right now you smelled fire smoke or heard a loud explosion, everything in your body would go on alert because change is the first warning sign of danger. And then when we get more information, we can settle down. But change is always a precursor to potential danger. So our body treats it that way. So, so we have all these negative emotions 
And we also are focusing on what we might lose from the situation. So for me, great, you have a new job. You're going to be part of LinkedIn. On one hand, I was like, oh, that's exciting. But almost simultaneously, it was, well, what if they don't like me? What if I don't like my job? What if I don't get duties I want to do? What if I'm not happy commuting back and forth? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, right? And we can just spin out on that. Well, that's all that part of the brain trying to anticipate potential danger so that I can solve it, so that I can survive it, so I can move through it. And then after we kind of go through all these negative emotions, what Kubler-Ross found is that we eventually kind of resign ourselves or accept what's happening to us. Remember, she was studying terminal diagnoses. And then we can find some kind of peace in it, some, some you know, uh, even hope or some sense of purpose in the process. And what was really fascinating was they were teaching her model to doctors and nurses in a hospital and they realized they had all just felt the same thing about a change that had happened at the hospital. So then business scholars started looking at, does this model apply to change? And they found out that yes, it did, that the same emotions get kicked off, that we essentially have layers of grief. And then when we turn this kind of peak of resignation where we resign ourselves to the change or we quit, uh, you can't quit dying, but you can quit a job. We then start to get engaged and we can look toward things we can gain and all that. So for me, the, that was the first big piece of research was like, oh, there's this thing. And then what I knew of the, the three layer brain, the, the survival brain, and then the limbic brain, and then the neocortex, that when we're in survival mode, we lose access to being able to think logically. We lose access to being able to have more nuanced emotions. And I saw that in myself, like I would be fine one day and the next day I would be literally riddled with anxiety about this transition and how, what it might mean. Um, particularly when I was anticipating it, once it finally happened and I was in it, I, I could be more active in the experience. Yeah, and so, that's very important when you get that sense of being active rather than passive back. Absolutely. You know, I think all humans need a sense of agency and, you know, we're seeing this with the pandemic. What was interesting is I wrote this book a couple years ago and then I finally had time to record the audiobook. So I was recording it in January, just when it was starting to look like it was going to be leaving Asia and, and spreading around the world. And as I was recording the chapters, I was like, oh, this is really relevant to right now. So I added the prologue and the epilogue, which are very pandemic specific because I could see it playing out, you know, we all had the initial reactions around what we thought was going to be a short-term lockdown, right? And then that has changed and now we're in this for a longer haul. And then also, you know, we have our habits of washing our hands or not wearing masks or going to our favorite social places. And, you know, this of course was messing with everyone's habits in a big way. We also were, you know, having to work from home and, and be, you know, 24 seven with people that we love, but maybe we don't want to be with them 24 seven. <laughs> so a lot was happening and you can just see people's resistance. You know, some people manage that resistance by kind of managing their emotions and leaning in or finding a sense of purpose. I'm doing this for the good of others. And other people, you know, their resistance led them to just not following any of the guidelines and, and really digging in on, their sense of personal freedom. But, you know, the same thing happens in corporations. You know, a, a corporation rolls out a big change and people don't get on board quickly. They oftentimes dig in their heels and actively resist it, even if that might be good for them. So there's something really interesting about this part of our biology because it can sometimes make us act not in our best interest. 
Yeah, the power of cognitive dissonance, that even though the argument is rational, even though the evidence is good, even though the situation is well-structured to manage the change, the cognitive dissonance is so powerful that the need to resist to maintain what you know and who you are and who you want to be you know, from yesterday, the habituation to yesterday is so powerful, which, you know, of course, then leaps us, unfortunately, over physical location, sort of the, the internal bit of GPS in the brain, and we can go back. But, you know, jumps us to the basal ganglia. The fact that the basal ganglia is saying, repeat yesterday, repeat yesterday, do something we've done before so we can just run the video and repeat. And I've lots of times given students the example, okay, how did you get from home to here today? How do you normally get home? Now, I want you to do the complete opposite use, completely different bus, train, road, everything different, but leaving this building and entering your house and then tell me how tired you are. And it freaks them out when they realize they're absolutely exhausted because they had to be situationally aware every minute of the trip. And they suddenly realize they haven't done that for months or years. Yeah. Yeah, the basal ganglia is one of my favorite brain structures because it makes our lives easier. You know, it takes things that we do over and over again and turns them into these habit loops, these automatic pilot, low energy packages that we don't have to spend any time thinking about. And on one hand, they're wonderful, but change always asks us to not only form new habits, which requires attention and focus and is exhausting, but oftentimes we're asking people to let go of a habit that's very well grooved and comfortable. And it, it's that juxtaposition that's really challenging. You know, I do a lot of leadership training and manager training. And unless you build some of the habits in the room by having them practice the skill in the room, the minute they go back to their cubicle or their office or whatever, everything in their environment is telling them to run the old habit. And yeah. unless you start grooving that new habit, it'll be a lovely conversation, but you won't actually see behavior change. And what I love about the pandemic, as much as this is difficult on all of us, it's that it's, it's gone on long enough for us to get to that magic number of 40 to 50 repetitions. Yeah. So while it was hard for us to all stay home and wash our hands so long and, and do all these behaviors, we had to do it enough days that it's eventually become easier. We've all kind of figured it out. And now we have these habits. Um, same with letting go of some of your routines. You know, I've given up a lot of my routines that I used to do, and now I've got substitutes. And at first it was hard and uncomfortable, but now, you know, it's not so hard. I'm, I'm kind of settled into it. So the good news is we couldn't kick out so early that we didn't all learn new behaviors and develop some new habits, which, you know, I don't think any of us will wash our hands for less than 20 seconds ever again, even once this is long over. <laughs> yeah, habituation is such an interesting thing. Like I, I use a white cane. So the easiest thing in the world is to walk down the same side of the same street, not to go on the other side. And I don't know when I decided to start doing the thing of, okay, you know, I can get from here to here a different way and my cane skills will be better for it. And I'll develop even more habituation. So the trick with doing the new is to not just say, I'm going to do it once but to make that deliberate point to go, I'm going to do this so many times that the alternative is also going to be habituated as an available safe option. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's definitely a continuum. This is the research of Chris Musselwhite. There's, there's a continuum of how we kind of orient toward change. There's some people who are super comfortable with change. They love to always innovate and change and try new things. 
those folks often end up as entrepreneurs or in leadership roles in organizations where they're constantly looking for new things. At the other end of the spectrum are the, what he calls conservers who, you know, they'll get on board with change if it's really clear what purpose the, the change is serving and all the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. So they really want to make sure we're doing it for a clear reason. We're doing it incrementally, slow it down. And then there's the pragmatists in the, in the middle that kind of translate between the two sides. And so what can happen, in fact, I'm, I'm working with a group of executives right now and I'm doing the change training with them. And they're all so comfortable with change and so easy with change. And they've just not lost touch, but maybe never known or never really gotten a clear understanding of how difficult it can be for the folks on the ground, you know, the frontline workers or how much resistance there might be. And I think sometimes, you know, it sounds like you're someone who challenges yourself and you put yourself in new situations to keep yourself adaptive and adaptable. And that's something that we can all learn to do. I just think some of us are more cautious and we just want things to go slowly. And so we'll create a life of that. We'll pick a career that's cautious and slow. We'll set up our lives to be cautious and slow. And that works until a global pandemic comes along and you don't get any choices with it. So... <laughs> Something that I was thinking about when I was reading the stuff about this is novelty. Most humans love novelty, but how do we define what is novel versus what is frightening change? How do we draw that line? Is that sort of jumping back probably to the amygdala that novelty is that's entertaining me and I'm not at all afraid? Yeah. I mean, if you think about most novel experiences, like I love to try a new restaurant. I love to go to a concert and see a band I haven't seen but I want to come home to my house and I want the heat to work and I want the lights to work and I want my bed to be comfortable. So if I can keep enough in my world stable and consistent, I have more bandwidth for novelty in certain areas. And so but, it's a question of proportionality, which is what you talk about in the book when you start talking about the model later in the book of only change a little bit at a time. Don't freak out all four bits of the brain at once. Yeah. Or if you're going to, I mean, the thing is sometimes change has to happen, right? Hmm. So part of what I write about in the book is if you understand the four different brain structures that can get active. So we've talked about the amygdala and we've talked about the basal ganglia. There's a couple others that once you understand how they work, then you can, as a leader, for example, craft your messaging and craft your rollout plan and particularly the support that you give a change so that you help people move through the natural resistance we can move through it. We're an adaptive species. It's just that typically, you know, change gets announced and then we're all kind of left to ourselves. And then if you have a lot of people who are resistant or particularly fearful with mere neurons and the whole group can be getting all tweaked and worked, you know, worked up about it. And the other thing that's really important that I tell leaders is in the absence of a narrative, the brain will fill in its own story, but it's always going to be the worst case scenario. And again, that's our survival mechanism. If I assume the worst, if I assume that because we have, and this has happened with an organization, they served lunch to their employees, but they realized every Friday, hardly any of the food was being eaten because people were going off campus and having lunch somewhere else. So they decided to get rid of Friday lunch service. And it quickly spun out to the company's in trouble. There's going to be layoffs. Everything's falling apart. And that wasn't the reason at all, but that's the story that the employees' brains made up because 
they're going to make a story and it's going to be worst case scenario. That is our biology doing its job for us because if I assume the worst, then I won't be caught off guard by it and I have a greater chance of surviving. If I ignore the worst possible situation, I'm likely to not survive however we define survival in that moment. Certainly losing a job is it hits at the core of survival for us these days because our paycheck is how we buy food, water, and shelter. Yeah, the classic example I always loved giving students is, okay, imagine 100,000 years ago, two humans walking across a savanna. One is looking at a pretty flower they've picked in their hand. The other is looking at the grass to see if anything's moving in the tall grass who had kids. And there's always some quiet laughs. And I go, and that's why your brain will jump to the I'm going to survive because it's scary conclusion unless someone gives you a real answer. To jump into the two bits of the brain, you know, again, I'm going in the wrong order here, but it's fine. You know, going, really with, order. <laughs> no, going with the connections, the idea of even sighted people being affected by location, you know, built in GPS. Like I'm used to the fact that I've constantly have to think about where I am. It's just a consequence of being blind. It's always being situationally aware, really other than three or four places that are literally so deeply in my brain everywhere else is pay attention to the cane pay attention to all the clues within the situation but to read that it is nearly equally as powerful for everyone else was kind of well i don't know whether to say inspiring enlightening probably enlightening for me because i always assumed it was just a weird thing i was doing as a blind guy but not realizing that location is as powerful for everyone nearly as it is for me yeah, you know, this, we're talking about the entorhinal cortex, which is a structure in the brain that sits within the hippocampus. And this is the research of Maybritt and Edvard Moser. And what they discovered was this, well, it's a sphere of cells, and they call them place cells. And they were able to hook up rats so that these cells, when they fire, would light up on a computer screen. And what they found is this is basically our internal GPS system, that when we navigate space, wherever that is, your office building, driving to work, getting to your favorite grocery store, whatever, we have a GPS system. And if you think about it, it's part of our survival wiring as well. Like we had to remember how to get back to the village. We had to remember how to get to the food source and the water source. And so this part of the brain builds literally a map that it, it makes. And so they could see it light up as they put rats in mazes. And the, this computer screen was lighting up in the same direction and speed as the rat was going and even marking boundaries when it would hit a wall. And then if you pop the rat into a new maze, he builds a new map. And when you pop him into the old maze, he brings up the old map. So we have all these maps. You'll know this feature by if you've ever gone back to the hometown where you grew up and something is different, like the, the field is now a Walmart or something, you notice it. And so this part of the brain can get activated during change if we are changing people's physical space. And my guess, David, is that once you've navigated space for a while, you know where you are in that space, but you would know if something was changed about it, but that you have And that's what I'm always testing. Yeah. I'm always testing. For me, the map provision has to be deliberate. Mm -hmm. So it's a thing of always going, well, okay, did they move the bin? Did they change where the tactiles are near the bus stop for the other cane to find the edge of the bus stop? All that kind of stuff, which does strangely end up getting changed when you would think that tactiles and bins would kind of be permanent. (laughs) <laughs> you know, where rubbish goes and where the bus stop is should remain quite consistent. But yeah, it was interesting to realize that this is as powerful because so often my assumption has been that with sighted people being able to look around means the scan is so fast. 
that they can make sense of it so fast that surely they must be relaxed. So it's given me a real insight why when people are concerned about driving somewhere new, I always thought it was more because, well, there's other traffic on the road and that's still part of it, but it is genuinely that thing of not knowing where you're going. Mm -hmm, for sure. And so when you're thinking about change that might roll out and impact people's workspace, this part of the brain will make a new map. It's just going to be part of the exhaustion that people feel because it has to do yeah. some heavy lifting. And you could also be thoughtful and create physical maps to show them where things are and help them orient you know, take them on tours, 3D virtual tours, all those things can help. What was interesting is I was talking to the Mosers. I said, well, does this part of the brain also map social relationships? And they said, it does, but we're not the people who research that. You need to talk to these other researchers. And it turns out this part of the brain also maps our social relationships so that when we go into any group, again, think back to kind of our tribal days and needing to navigate relationships, our brain is scanning for who has power and who do I feel connection with or have affinity for? And so we kind of build those relationships based on our interactions. We kind of know who's doing what and we kind of figure out who we like to work with and who we avoid and all that kind of stuff. Well, in organizations, teams get reorganized all the time. And when that happens, people lose the map, the mental map they've built of those relationships and they have to build a new one. So again, depending on the type of change, the social network map might need to be rebuilt and require some heavy lifting of this part of the brain um, as people are navigating these new connections and new relationships. The interesting thing with that too is you look, and I can't think of the guy's name who came up with it. It was the guy who realized we can hold about 150 people in our head and know a fair bit about each of them. Yeah. And that, that is about the limit of our social map. Dunbar. Yeah. Dunbar, well done, Tim. He's yeah, <laughs> one kind of dad, my voice hurts word, and he gets the key word. Yeah, the Dunbar number is fantastic because, again, it's that amount of people where you can remember enough about them to remember how you interact with them and how they interact with each other. His research is really relevant, and I talk more about it in my Wired to Connect book, which is all about teams. But absolutely, a, a whole bunch of our biology is tied to belonging in a community because we are a tribal species. And so a lot of our biology is around reading emotions and people knowing where we are in the group, being super sensitive to when we're starting to get excluded or marginalized because that's actually a threat to our survival. That's all really fascinating research too. And so if you have change that messes with people's sense of belonging, it's like a double whammy. And that's what this pandemic was because not only did we have to go through this really scary survival thing, which is still really scary. Like every time I go out to get groceries, I completely suit up and I come home and I completely shower off and I'm not doing anything except really distanced stuff. It's still really scary. You know, one, one mistake and I could, I could die. So what's interesting is that, you know, we, we had this really fearful thing happening while we were simultaneously losing access to the communities we, where we feel connected and where we belong, our, our coworkers, our family members, our friends. And so it's created this really weird survival minus the people I would lean on to help me through survival, double whammy. And I think that's what's made it particularly challenging for people and why their stamina for it is not always as long as the, as the pandemic is going to be. Yeah, the pandemic is really added a whole other level. But when I started reading your book and you're weird out of the prologue because of when you were recording the audiobook version, one of the things I started thinking about is think of all the workplaces where in the last three or four years they've gone to hot desking. 
So where there used to be some sense of physical space, you and your team sat here and this is where your friend sat and this is where your team leader sat and this is where your section leader sat. And suddenly all that got thrown up in the air. So both the social map and the physical map, you know, it saved space. It theoretically meant there could be more collaboration. But how many people didn't deal well with hot desking? Even before the pandemic, was that looking like a shaky idea that hadn't really worked? Yeah, I'm not a fan. I mean, I'm not a fan of that for a variety of reasons. And the research has never, I mean, definitely it's a cost-saving measure. So if you're looking for a cost-saving measure, great. And for teams that have to collaborate together and work well together, putting them in a space that they share and having them have the ability to communicate with each other easily, that is a huge benefit. But oftentimes it was interpreted that not only were people now in these open cubicle, open spaces, which doesn't work for people who are more introverted on that kind of EI scale, who need to be able to focus and be quiet to get work done. In addition, people lost sense of having a a sense of place. They couldn't decorate their desk anymore. They they lost kind of the map because every time you show up, you're in someplace else. So it actually was creating a level of psychological disturbance or biological disturbance that I don't think people were really measuring, but it was part of helping people disengage a little bit. Like, I don't totally belong here. I don't, I'm not, I haven't put my stuff down. I don't have a space that's mine. And that when you have people just disengage a little bit, that's the beginning to disengaging a lot. And it's, yeah. it's not actually good for organizations, but it saves money. So it just depends on what you're trying to measure, right? Yeah, when productivity was already so low in so many places, to then give people another very deep emotional sense of disconnection. Uh, no yeah. wonder it's been a recipe for you know, the number of surveys in the US, UK and Australia of how many people get no satisfaction out of work. And it appears that the jump to hot desking just added another layer of they didn't ask us, they don't listen to us, they don't care about us, they don't understand what matters. You know, being at a university that was talking about for a while, they're taking our offices away. And guys, this is academics. 90% of the people here are introverts. 90% of them really can't deal with other people all the time, or it totally disrupts their flow. They like to put their face on and go out in the world to teach and to interact. But knowing that's what they're doing next, not having to constantly be in that semi-social state, which is antithetical to deep thought and writing. Absolutely. You know, Daniel Goleman's written a book called Focus, which is all the studies on what focus gives us and that ability to go deep in thinking. And first of all, social media and the way our phones work have really interrupted that because there's just things are fed up so quickly. But when we don't have the ability to go deep or the time or the space to go deep, we're losing a lot of really powerful thinking. And some of us have to really fight for it. Well, you can't predict the future, but what... What are you leaning towards will be the impact of all of us or so many of us working from home now and having that quiet space of being able to walk away from the laptop or the phone and think for 20 minutes if we need to, or you put the little red light that says not available on up on the screen to get some time. Do you think this is going to be a massive productivity gain once people go, I'm not afraid of the pandemic anymore, but I'm going to get the benefits of working from home in a place I like with more silence. 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have not done a scientific study on this, but I can tell you some things that I'm noticing. So first of all, research has always shown that people who work from home are actually more productive than the folks in the office because they're just, you know, and, and we're all feeling it. Like once you sit down and you're in Zoom meetings, like it's really hard to pull yourself away from the screen and you can find yourself sitting there for hours. People's bodies are seizing up right now because they're just not moving as much. Um, where in the office, you know, you kind of had permission to pop by and talk to Joe and swing over there and grab a cup of coffee and do this and do that. So the truth was the companies that allowed working from home were actually getting more productivity. The good news is we've hung out long enough in this space that I think everyone is seeing that there's a cost to that. Like Zoom fatigue is real. You know, yeah. why Zoom is exhausting is that our body biologically knows, like I, I'm seeing both of your images and you're lovely, but your heads are one inch tall. And I know that real yeah. men do not have one inch tall heads, you know, <laughs> like, and I can only see your head. I can't see the rest of you. And in addition, my peripheral vision can actually pick up the room that I'm actually sitting in. So when we're communicating through a two-dimensional screen, our, our biology loses a lot of the data, including micromuscular changes in the face muscles, pheromones, smells, sounds, you know, even brain waves. Scientists aren't totally sure how they pass between us, but there must be some kind of electrical, invisible communication that happens between our bodies. We're losing all that. And I think people are feeling that in addition to the hunger of wanting to be around people. So I'm kind of glad we've hung out here long enough that, you know, top level executives aren't like, oh, we've, look at all the money we're saving, cancel all offices, everyone works from home now all the time. I think there will be a swing back, but I'm hoping the swing back will be a balanced one where sometimes people can work from home. People, yeah. people will now kind of let go of some of those artificial things that separated us like business suits and you know who's got the fancier office versus the cubicle we're all kind of like having some of that stuff stripped away we're having to be more authentic and things are more intimate I'm personally loving my talk show hosts out of the studio and in their homes like it just is a much more intimate connection than it has been so I think there's some really wonderful things happening with that said We'll have to see what the long-term impact is. I think some people are enjoying wearing much more comfortable, casual clothes, being able to be at home with their pets or their kids, and, and they're going to push for that. And the other thing is that we're seeing people, in, at least in the United States, there is a massive exodus from the cities right now. Like re real estate is being bought up in suburban and rural areas in really big numbers and people are leaving cities because first of all, if they can work from anywhere, why am I sitting in a city where there's no trees and I can't get outside and there's a lot more people to be exposed to. So I think we're going to actually see a huge kind of recalculating where people live. We're certainly seeing that right now in the United States, like in my County, you can't get a house because they're being bought up from all these people who are not from California. Um, and my dad lives in Montana, same thing. Houses are just being snatched up sight unseen because people are trying to get out of the cities. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing here. This could be the rebirth of a whole pile of towns where literally they were down to having the post office, the pub and the petrol station left. And that was about it. And yet the houses hadn't been selling for years. Yeah. And in reality, if they can come back, the difference it could make to people. So most people I took this seem to be saying they'd like to go in like at least one, maybe two days a week, but no more. So it seems yeah. like we're heading towards a world where a lot of people 
seem to be leaning towards 50 to 60% home and work will be far more about not sitting at the computer while they're in, but all the people they catch up with for 20 minutes and a half hour, reestablish their social connections, do the brainstorming session, do the collaborative thing in the group using a breakout room and then go home and do the productive individual person stuff on their own, sitting where they feel really comfortable. seems like the perfect balance. Yeah, I think we're going to move toward more of a balance. You know, not everyone's jobs are going to allow them to do that. You know, part of what we're talking about are largely white collar jobs, right? Yeah. Some of the essential workers are not getting those same benefits or privileges. But I do think how work is thought about is being completely restructured right now. And we're, you know, every business is having to innovate very quickly and pivot very quickly again and again and again. And I really see a lot of silver lining in this. I think some really interesting things are unfolding. And I think we're also really valuing how much we need each other and how connected we really are. You know, this little invisible thing cannot be argued with, it can't be controlled. It's, it's just kind of leveling the playing fields. Political systems and, and country boundaries don't matter. You know, we're, we're very connected yeah. as a world. And I think we're all seeing that. And, and there's something really beautiful in the fact that, you know, I've never met you guys before. You live across the planet from me. And yet you're living through the exact same thing I am at the same time. Like we all are in this together. And there's never been anything like that in the history of the world before. Yeah, because even when it was massive events like World War One or World War Two, everyone was involved in their own bit of it on their own side. So as much as it affected everyone, everyone had such a different experience of it depending on what side they were on. Here we're all equally baffled by this tiny creature that can't be negotiated with. Yes, it and changes now the- with technology and social media, we can see each other's life you know, World War One and World War Two media wasn't at the level it is now. So we, we have yeah. an intimate understanding now that we didn't even have during those global events. This sort of, in a really awkward way, jumps us to the fourth part of the brain you talked about in the book, and that's the part of the brain that remembers if we've failed at something and says, don't do that again. And this seems to think at the moment with the pandemic, if things start going well, we'll go, hey, we did all this hard work. We stayed at home. We washed our hands. We wore our masks. And guess what? We all got through it. And if we're successful, it will help habituate. Well, I don't mind doing a bit of extra work. I don't mind being a bit more disciplined. But if this goes on for longer and longer and longer and there's no end in sight, I wonder what people's behavior will look like. Well, there's two things. You know, one of the things that we know is as we engage in something that's risky, like learning how to drive a car or learning, you know, using a heavy piece of machinery, when we're doing something risky, we tend to pay a lot of attention to it, right? We we focus on it. Be careful with the knife. Be careful with this heavy machinery. But as we habituate to it and, and it goes on that autopilot, first of all, we pay less attention. But in addition, each time we survive what could have been a risky behavior, our brain lowers its perception of how risky that behavior is. And this is what leads to a lot of workplace accidents, is that people kind of, because they've survived, you know, every time someone survives driving a little bit under the influence, 
they're more likely to do it the next time because yeah. nothing bad happened to them. And yet the reality is every time they go out or every time they use that piece of heavy machinery, they are just as likely to have something bad happen. So this is why, you know, people can stop paying attention and lose their focus on safety. In fact, one of my favorite safety trainings is called Safe Start and it's out of a company in Canada. And when it's brought into an organization, the, the, the injuries and the accidents go way down because it basically takes this putting blinders on or forgetting how uh, dangerous things are and brings it into our awareness so that we notice when we're doing it and then we bring ourselves back to the attention we should be paying. Mm. So I think a couple of things are going to happen. I think the more we do this, sloppier people are going to get, and then we're going to have these bursts of outbreaks again. And sadly, you know, some people will, will die from that. You know, others might have the flu-like symptoms, but some are going to have the really terrible, terrible symptoms and, and, and die a horrible death. And it's just, it's just hard for everyone to kind of remember that. But over time, we're going to create a new normal. The problem is that this new normal is not established yet. We're still in the journey of it. So we have this new normal between now and when a vaccine comes out. Then we're going to have the whole joy of who wants to get a vaccine and how long it takes to get a vaccine and who's resisting a vaccine and all of that, because some people have strong feelings about it. And, and unfortunately, so many sci-fi movies have been made about the vaccine gone wrong. I mean, I saw I Am Legend, you know, like, I don't know if I'm going to be the first one in line, but I'm certainly going to get in line. But, you know, that's been the, the storyline between so many apocalyptic futures is the vaccine gone bad. You know, there's going to be a whole level of resistance there. And then we'll see the actual efficacy. And then, of course, viruses have this little thing that they do that they, they mutate and they change, and, which is why we need a different flu vaccine every year. So, mm. you know, it could be that, uh, I don't know, and this is not my area of science. So, but I, I, I do suspect that we're going to be in for an ongoing journey with COVID with multiple vaccines over time. And I don't know what that will look like in the future. So really it jumps back to your original point about if the leaders don't put a narrative out there, people will fill in the worst possible version. Absolutely. So instead of our leaders talking about returning to normal, they need to talk about, well, here are the things we want to build into whatever happens. You know, there will be social inclusion. There will be as much justice as possible. There'll be as much education as possible. We'll tell you what's going on as soon as we can. We'll let you know about timeframes. If something's going to run out or not be the way it was meant to be, we'll tell you why and how and what we're doing about it. So it seems that the whole trust me, I'm a leader thing, there's so much a part of our you know, democratic leadership in the West. It now needs to be, no, I'm going to tell you why you should trust me. So you can trust me because what we're dealing with is going to remain uncertain. And if I don't give you a good answer, you're going to put in a bad answer. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think leaders, you know, leaders having that calm, steady presence and putting out a clear narrative really makes a difference. I mean, we've seen it, we've seen it around the world who, who's exemplifying good leadership and who is not. Right. I think the other thing that we need to remember is that, I mean, I, I'm a scientist. So can we just get over making scientists like a myth? Like nobody's arguing that gravity exists. So mm. can we just stop arguing that, you know, viruses <laughs> do what they're doing? I, I just think the fact that science has been allowed to get corrupted 
has is something that a lot of people have played along with. I think I've sen I'm sensing that people are kind of getting done with that. Like, no, we're not going to do that anymore. But the reality is there's some facts of how science works, like gravity, like, you know, when the sun goes down, it gets dark, like, you know, temperature, we don't argue all that. So I think there's just some elements of science that we just shouldn't be giving an ear toward questioning in the way that we are right now. That's just a dangerous I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It's just a very dangerous thing to do. So part of what I've been thinking about is how do we start to make sure more people are science literate? Right now, a certain level of critical thinking and understanding of some of these subjects comes from a college education. And yet only 6% of the world's population ever gets a college education. And it's roughly a third of Americans get a college education. I'm sure it's a higher number in Australia too. But we need to start thinking about how do we use our elementary education and even professional education, like learning and development. Like a lot of companies really rely on their workers to believe in some level of science for the product to, to be, you know, designed and delivered the right way or their employees to behave in the right way. And so I think we're going to have to start looking at how do we make science literacy more mainstream and how do we help close the gaps where people don't have it? Because really when people are given a certain exposure to some of this information, they, they do understand it does make sense. And it's when they're lacking that, that then they can really spin off in conspiracy theories and some of these, these other places. They just don't have the, enough information to counterbalance it. So they will believe whatever narrative they're given. The thing I've been thinking about this is because climate change science kept scaring people to the degree it did, the cognitive dissonance of, I don't want to see this, the resistance of, I don't want the world to be, you know, getting well destroyed by our dumb decisions means instead of just shutting down climate science, the easier thing to do is go, well, what does science know? So as part of that justification for maintaining ignorance on one thing got carried sideways. So what I'm hoping is that partially if people wake up to understanding viruses and the virus, that acceptance of science or medicine in this area then means, well, we don't like the answers on climate either, but it's just as real as a virus. So Absolutely. how about we address that step by step and effectively as individuals and groups and collectively and say to our leaders, Hey leaders, you've got better at providing clear leadership and a clear narrative with the virus. How about you provide clear leadership and narrative on these other important issues where science has been saying a lot for a while and cognitive dissonance and resistance have been getting in our way. Absolutely. And I'm going to go one step farther and say when science got corrupted, it was because powerful people were, would stand to lose money. You know, it was very much the oil and gas lobbies and the car lobbies that said, uh-uh, <laughs> we don't want this conversation to get too far. And so started using their influence within the political sphere to, to say, you know, we will give you whatever money you need, but let's make this conversation go away. And, and one way to do that is we just start disbelieving scientists. Sadly, with both the virus and climate change, the proof will come out. I mean, science is, you know, the environment will yeah, do it. The evidence is there. Yeah. yeah. So the evidence, the, the sad thing is it will still win in the end. It's just how many people will die in the proofing of it. 
and yeah. the virus. There is no reason for this many people to be dead. There is no reason. And I feel so sad for the families that are now torn apart by, by this and that. And yet we're looking at the longer arc of society, but there's lessons to be learned here that, that we can't engage in this kind of, of political hijacking of, of human facts. If you could only give, say, two or three critical bits of advice, normally you would be writing for, for business leaders, but at the moment if we extended it further, we just need good leadership, you know, period, for societies and states as a whole. What would your couple of bits of absolute key advice be from all your experience and your research? You know, if you want to be a leader in this world, here are the few things you absolutely need to have, you know, front and center of your brain. I would say probably three or four things. One is you can't know it all or do it all. So surround yourself with really good people and listen to them, you know, listen to them. Um, there's a lot of really smart people in the world. And if you either seek them out or bring them on your team, bring together good people and listen to them. I think that's the first sign of a really good leader. The next sign of a really good leader is they understand that they really are crafting the journey for a lot of people. They, they take seriously their role and they think about how best to lead people, knowing that it's sometimes hard and sometimes difficult. What we know is that consistently with studies, people follow folks that they trust. They don't have to agree with them, but they have to believe that there's integrity there, that that, that person has values and they act in alignment with their values. It's when there's a lack of integrity that people don't trust their leaders and they don't follow them anymore. So even if you, you know, know what your values are and act in alignment with them and talk about them. I think some of my favorite research on leadership is Barry Posner and Jim Cousy's work that they've done now. It's, it's, they're on the 25th edition of their book. It's, it's globally valid and, and reliable, but their book, The Leadership Challenge, is really quite powerful because it's just in every country, in every culture, we look to leaders for the same thing. I think leaders also need to have, it's part of listening to good people, you know, that humility, it, it's not all you, you don't have all the answers. So have the humility to listen to others and, and do what you can to be helpful. And then particularly around change, being that calm, steady presence, even when you're delivering hard news, being able to just do it calmly and say, okay, here's what we have to face. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here's what we need to have everyone get on board with. You know, we've seen some examples around the world of leaders who are really doing that. And then we've seen examples of folks who are not, but people really need to be able to look to someone and, and pull from their strength, pull from their calmness. And the other thing is say it over and over and over again, because yeah, people the are power of repetition. Yeah, that power of repetition is super powerful, particularly with change. I mean, it's one of the things that I teach leaders with my change model is just you have to keep repeating the message because you don't know when they're finally going to tune into it. And because all this biological stuff is going on at first, you know, it gets in the way. I always tell leaders, people are not being difficult. They're being human. And if you account for the biology and you build in the structures and your leadership, then you'll help them get through it. We can't make the change curve go away, but we can shorten its duration and lessen its lessen the resistance. And that's how good leadership should be measured is how well they did those things. Yeah. When you make the point in the book that there's change you choose 
or don't choose this change you want or don't want? And really, is it change you want and you get to choose it? More often than not, it's some less good combination. Like you can see the benefit of the change, but you really don't want it now. Or you don't see the benefit of the change, you know, and neither do you want it. And you just have to deal anyway. So people need as much support as possible and an exemplar and the clear explanation to continue. Because like you said, the biology gets in the way for a long time until finally they see the message is consistent. The person leading us through this is a good exemplar. They're being clear. We know what's happening next. I don't have to like this, but I can give up feeling afraid. And I can see that lots of people are committed to this who I trust. And that that can be a a huge breakthrough once people realize all those pieces are in place. Absolutely. And then there's a little part of me that wants to go back and just describe that fourth brain structure because I don't think I actually told people what it does. So let me just hit that real quick. The habenula is the fourth brain structure and it tracks when we make mistakes and it uses these chemical guardrails of cutting off serotonin and dopamine to make us not make that mistake in the future. So an example back to our tribal days, if I went down a path and I found food and water, I'd get serotonin and dopamine. And if I went down a different path and didn't get anything good, the habenula would activate and cut off serotonin and dopamine. And the thing is, you know, the next day when I go to that fork in the road, I will, I will emotionally, psychologically just feel like going down the right path, maybe on an unconscious level. What's so interesting is when the habinula is super active, first of all, that's what's going on with people with intense depression is that they're not ever getting access to serotonin and dopamine, but it can go so far as to suppress your motor neurons, meaning it's physically hard to take steps in the direction that you should not be going. And I know a lot of folks with depression have described that, like laying in bed saying, I I literally can't sit up. I can't get out of bed. And it's because their motor neurons are suppressed. So why this relates to change is that, you know, we've got this part of our body that's paying attention to when we make mistakes. And if you think about most change initiatives, and I've I've given this talk all over the world, so I'll have a room of a thousand people and I'll say, raise your hand if you rolled out a change initiative and all the hands go up. All right, keep them up if they were on time. Half the hands come down. Keep them up if it was also on budget, the rest of the hands come down. And so what happens with change is we'll roll out a change initiative and then the meetings go like this. Hey guys, we're two weeks behind budget or behind schedule. We've got to hurry, 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 hurry. We don't say, hey, congratulations, you did X, Y, and Z and give the brain some kind of reward. We just talk about failure. We screwed up, we're behind schedule, we're over budget, fix it, fix it, fix it. So over time, the habinula gets really activated in change. And that plus the fact that there's change fatigue, people are just going through so much change all the time, that now when a leader says, hey, we've got a change you're rolling out, you can literally see everyone go, oh no. You like can feel the fear in the room. Yeah. Droop, you know? And so what I tell people is because of the habinula, you have to keep measuring progress and effort And so the meeting should go, hey, we accomplished this and this and this, high fives all around. All right, now we're two weeks behind schedule. So what are we gonna do to scramble to make up the difference? We gotta do something different. But we've gotta reward what people have done and typically it's just one big negative message after another. And over time, the habenula is just saying, forget change, change is just one big failure. Yeah, we need to go to the model of good news, bad news, good news. So yes, they can see something's not great, but prime them positively so that they'll listen openly and then reinforce the positive. So they go, oh, well, we we got back to good at the end. We can turn this around. 
right, some people will just not hear the bit in the middle, but most will, from my experience, hear the negative, but in a much better context. Yes, I've always called that the uh, feedback sandwich, the positive, the negative, the positive. Yeah, I was thinking of its less polite name and trying to work out how to make it more polite. So I think I'll just start <laughs> calling it the feedback sandwich. <laughs> now, Britt, is there anything you would like to tell our audience about your current book or anything you're working on that you would like them to go out and look at? Well, if they want to see what I'm up to, my, my name is my website, BrittAndriata.com. And we will share, uh, we'll make sure we share a free chapter of the Wired to Resist book with your audience so that they can check that out. But if they want to look at my other work, I've got one book, Wired to Grow on the Brain Science of Learning. Wired to Resist is the one on change. Wired to Connect is the one on teams. Um, and right now I'm in the middle of polishing and will soon be releasing my Brain Aware Manager training, which will be a manager training that's got brain science woven through the whole thing. And one of the sections is on change. Um, so if any of you are in, you know, learning and development, or you want to see something like that brought to your organization, you can learn more about my training solutions on my website as well. And then I also love to connect with folks on LinkedIn. So I love it when people connect with me there or follow me there, because I'm always posting on these topics. Brilliant. Britt Andriata, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you for being on Blind Insights. Lovely to meet you both. Lovely to connect with your listeners. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.